This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to another edition of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North and in a, a bit of a different venue than we normally do for the show. I'll go, I guess that's par for the course lately because we did the live show in Ottawa a couple of weeks back at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference. There is no studio audience here. I am in a hotel room in Montreal. So uh, you have to do when you're doing a show from a hotel that like one angle where no one sees your messy bed from the night before. So that's the angle I'm sitting in now. If I tilt the camera uh, one inch in either direction, I'll just look like a big old slob on camera more than usual, I guess. So don't answer that. Uh, but it is good to talk to you. It is Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Hope you gone through April Fool's Day without any uh, particularly acute pain, apart from, of course, the increase in the carbon tax, which uh, just makes the jokes for people. When a tax increase is going up on April Fool's Day, it just writes the lines for the opposition. But alas, that was not enough to elicit a bit of shame from the government and perhaps hold back on that, which is why we spent some time talking about that with with Sylvain Charlebois last week. And interestingly enough, I had mostly good feedback to that interview with the Dalhousie professor, uh, but I had one negative comment who said, why didn't I instead talk to uh, producers of food in this country? And I said to him, I, I would absolutely do that. If you have any recommendations, please send them along, because I, I don't think that one person has all the answers. But I must say, I, I do think Sylvain Charlebois is very level-headed about this, especially when he takes aim at supply management, when he talks about the effect of carbon tax, when he talks about all of the supply chains. And I liked his prescription for this, quite frankly, which is get rid of sales tax on all grocery store products, on all food products. Don't do this little silly thing where, well, sometimes a product's a snack and sometimes it's a grocery and the size depends on it and all of that. So uh, we'll definitely talk about this more because as I said, Canadians are certainly left holding the bag when the government allows inflation to be as bad as it is right now. So we're going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm going to have an interview later on with Tracy Wilson about firearms. We spoke at the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference, but with the recommendations from the Nova Scotia Mass Casualty Commission report, there is, I think, perhaps a bit more time timeliness to that interview. And I also want to talk about a different side of the Chinese foreign interference story. I want to talk about the CSIS angle because we've been talking about the politics of it, what China's doing, what Justin Trudeau didn't do. But let's go back and discuss for a moment when we have Andrew Kershaw, a former CSIS intelligence officer, that idea of what goes into these documents, of what the leak really is. Was it a whistleblower? Is it a leaker? And I think Andrew Kirsch goes against where a lot of other conservatives are on this issue, but I still think he's a thoughtful guy, so I want to hear him out on it. 
But let's start off with the big news this week, which is the federal court hearing on the Emergencies Act. The government, you may remember, it uh, feels like a long time ago, but uh, a year ago in February invoked the Emergencies Act. It was Justin Trudeau's uh, big, bold, chest-thumping stand against the peaceful trucker convoy protest. And the Emergencies Act has been the subject of several legal challenges. Three in particular are being heard this week. One by the Canadian Constitution Foundation, one by the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, and one by by frontline nurses, which is an advocacy group that is a bit more aligned, I think, with where the convoy was rather than just taking the strict civil liberties angle that the CCLA and CCF are. But these three groups are making their cases. The first day of the hearings was yesterday. Uh, they are still underway today by the time you are watching this, most likely. Uh, maybe they've wrapped up by the time you're watching it. Depends on when you're watching it. And the last day of the hearings is going to be tomorrow. Now, this will be the first opportunity for a judge to weigh in on the legality of the Emergencies Act. And I, I just want to take a moment on that because we had the big public order emergency commission. We had the seven weeks of witness testimony, of documentary evidence, and all of that. And certainly there was a lot that came out of that, a lot of information. But the final report from Commissioner Paul Rouleau, who is a judge, the final report was not legally binding in any way. He didn't find legal liability. He didn't find uh, criminal or civil liability. He found what he thought was the takeaway from this and made some recommendations for the future, but that is not something that carries any legal weight. The Supreme Court will probably ultimately have to decide this, but right now it is before the federal court. After that, it goes to the federal court of appeal. I'm, I'm already just looking, I'm already just writing off that, you know, this is going to happen and it's going to be appealed and uh, we're going to get there. But what's interesting right now is how little the federal government even wants to have this discussion. They're doing this old trick that they love doing on cases that are related to to vaccine mandates or COVID fines where they say it's moot. We don't need to have this federal court hearing over the Emergencies Act because it is moot. The Emergencies Act is no longer in effect. Therefore, there is no reason to have this. We can all just forget about it and move on. And this was a once- well, basically a once in a lifetime, because so far the Emergencies Act has only been used once, so it's once in anyone's lifetime, but it was a one-time deal as far as Canada is concerned right now. Despite the successor, uh, the Emergencies Act being the successor to the War Measures Act, the Emergencies Act has only been used once and that was to deal with the Freedom Convoy. So it's the kind of situation where perhaps some judicial oversight, some more guidance, some more scrutiny about whether it was appropriately applied would be a good idea. But the federal government is saying, well, you know, we don't really need to because if it comes up again, the circumstances are going to be different. So this decision that you get on its use here isn't really going to be applicable. And they just want to conveniently sweep it under the rug, move on, never to look at it again. They, In their view, they had the public order of Emergency Commission. It vindicated Justin Trudeau. No reason to discuss any further. So that was really what dominated a lot of day one. You had uh, the CCF and the CCLA and frontline nurses saying, no, we absolutely need to hear this. And the Attorney General's lawyer saying, Justin Trudeau's lawyer saying, uh, yeah, it's just moot now. Don't even bother with it. We, we don't need to deal with this at all. 
And in my experience, I mean, this has been a winnable argument. That was how the federal court managed to strike down the challenge against the air travel vaccine mandate. They said it was moot. They said the mandate is no longer there. We don't need to hear it. We don't need to hear the case. Even if the government might say, have said they'll bring it back, uh, we can just deal with that then. So uh, mootness has become a big weapon for the government in the COVID era, where, again, the whole point of it is that you don't want to be litigating cases where it's purely an academic exercise, where there's no practical reality that will emerge from it. But the problem is that it is the extenuating circumstances of the last three years that have, in the government's view, licensed the state to do all these things that they're now saying are moot. So the reality here now is that we're supposed to just shrug our shoulders and say, well, maybe it won't come up again. So yeah, yeah, probably doesn't matter. But I actually don't think that is the appropriate call at all. And I'm glad that the federal court judge seemed to be pushing back against this. We're going to do a full recap of the hearings on Thursday's show once we've heard all of the arguments and counter arguments and all of that before the court. So that's going to be something to keep an eye out for. But I wanted to give you a bit of a primer on weaponized mootness, which is the uh, federal... I mean, it sounds like such a bland word, but it is a concept that the government certainly is weaponizing against people that can't care about constitutional rights. We are going to talk now about Chinese interference. Now, this is a, a big story. It's one that's kept on going. We've discussed it mostly in a political context because I think that's where the accountability on this is also going to ultimately going to rely. We've had two politicians that have had to leave their caucuses over this. Han Dong, the federal liberal, and Vincent Ke, the provincial progressive conservative. Both of them have insisted they did no wrong whatsoever, but there has also been a slew of damning stories both in Global News and the Globe and Mail based on CSIS reports that point fingers at these two gentlemen and several others that have not been named like they have. And, you know, I think that these stories are in the public interest. And I think when China's interfering in Canada's elections and you have this information being put to the government and the government is not doing anything about it, it's something that the public ought to know about. But my decision on that, my perspective on that may be different and in fact is different from what the law says about what information can be shared with the public. And I mean, this is why confidential, classified, secret, top secret, all of these designations exist. So I I want to talk about this with Andrew Kirsch, who we had on the show about his memoir previously. I was never here. He's a former CSIS intelligence officer and has a bit of a different take on this than most people on the right in Canada do. Uh, Andrew Kirsch joins me now. Andrew, good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me back. It's great to uh, be here. Yeah, it's uh, good to talk to you again. I enjoyed our last chat, which was that higher level discussion and some specifics as well about your experience in CSIS. And I, I wanted to actually use that experience as a jumping off point for this story, because obviously I've been covering on this show the Chinese interference stuff for uh, several months now it's been. And I think the political side of it and the global geopolitical side of it has been well covered. But we haven't actually talked about the, I think, the fundamental question here of what is in these reports, these documents that have now been leaked to the Globe and Mail and to Global News, and, and just to put some context around how people should be interpreting what they're reading about these things. So let me just ask you, generally speaking, as someone who uh, devoted your life for a time to service in, in CSIS, how did you feel when you learned that there was a leak? Yeah, I wasn't too happy about it. Uh, you know, 
I've been very defensive about the organization. I, I'm 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 not happy with the leaks. You know, I, I don't think that's a whistleblower. I think they're leakers. Uh, I, I, you know, we take a, you know, explain that difference because I, yeah, I know so there it's is. Been, so I think a whistleblower, and, and I'm not a lawyer, so don't quote me on the legal definitions. But where there is a you know blowing the whistle on a, a legal activities or wrongdoing, or or where I think there are some there's some protections around uh, releasing otherwise sensitive information. Uh, where it's in this very specific, you know, circumstances. Whereas in this case, I think it was just a situation where the person took sensitive classified documents and kind of dumped them on the public. And I don't think they exposed certainly no wrongdoing of the organization. Uh, you know, these were reports that were sent out and through appropriate channels. And this, this person felt like they wanted more people to read them, which, you know, is not in our independent, uh, we're not allowed to make those decisions independently on the collection side, right? Like CSIS has its role, which is to collect, analyze, and advise government on threats to national security. And then the deciders decide, right? We may not always be happy with what they decide, but that's the way it kind of works. That's how the system works together. So, you know, when I see somebody kind of breaching on the you know, the advising part uh, because they don't feel like the deciders made the right decision. I said, well, that's not, you know, that's not our job. Uh, that's not on people's, that's not their uh, decision to make. Uh, and that's why I felt, I said, not, not very comfortable because there are repercussions, ramifications, right? When we are out there, when I was out there, we're talking about uh, last time as an intelligence officer, knocking on doors and asking people to give me confidential secret, you know, information uh, that I can then, you know, put in reports and investigate national security, I'm promising confidentiality. I'm saying the things you tell me, you know, will be protected uh, and take that oath. And when we work with our partners and five eyes community, we give them the same promise of protection and maintaining the integrity of the information. So when it gets out, it's a really bad look. Uh, now, in this case, I think it's our own information that we've compromised. So I don't know if our partners will be upset with us, but uh, it's, you know, th this is sensitive stuff. These are things, uh, and I'm not sure the specific sources of them, but it really does get into sources and methods and and maybe people can make some observations about how this information was collected. And so those people were investigating can better protect themselves from our investigative measures, right? Which is you know what what we don't want to happen. So I mean it's a long answer, but uh yeah, did don't like it. Uh I know many of my former uh colleagues don't like it. I'm sure the organization doesn't like it. And whatever we think about the value of, of the information we have, you know, a lot of people say, well, this is this is good that we know about these things. It's important to remember there's a cost to that as well. There's a risk when our information gets out uh, like this. So I just don't want to forget that. Now, I, I would just point out here, you're a, a former conservative candidate provincially in, in 2018. So I, I don't know how you identify politically now, but you're not a, a partisan liberal. This isn't coming from a, a place of uh, supporting the liberals, which is, I think, where a lot of the defense of, of your position on that has come from it's, in the last couple of months. You know what? It's really been interesting. So I, I put out a tweet on you know, tweet. I don't tweet a lot. I, I don't love social media. but That's I probably good. That's probably wise. I, I know. Uh, so I may be a bad candidate, but I put out a, a tweet about how I, I, I did not appreciate the leaks i did not like the whistleblowers you know uh column there in the, in the globe and mail saying you know this is why i did it uh the person who called himself a whistleblower i just said he was a leaker uh this is why i did it and and all these things so you know i wrote a, a, a what i think was a you know, harsh but fair kind of a twitter thread and it was retweeted by liberal liberal supporters and partisans and i'm sure some bots and I, I kind of joke myself, wait till they find out that I ran for the PCs. You know, it's a lot of people, <laughs> things with uh, I hate Doug Ford and in, in the uh, hashtags. And I was like, I ran, you know. So in my point, opinion, this is a nonpartisan issue. It shouldn't be a partisan issue. You know, all parties 
are at risk. All levels of government are at risk. It doesn't have to be a partisan issue. It's become one, unfortunately. Um, but but yeah, it's definitely been a talking point on one side. And I said coming from a from a you know former PC candidate in 2018, uh, yeah, by no means a partisan liberal uh, supporter. We can I think you can safely say that. But but let's take the position you've put forward and, and advance it a bit, because I, I agree that whistleblower protections generally are when someone is exposing legal wrongdoing and generally within their own organization. And in this case, I think actually CSIS comes off quite well in the leak, and it's the, the government that comes off not particularly well. But assuming we take it every take it all at face value, and we'll, we'll get into that in, in a couple of moments, we have allegations that China was interfering, that CSIS knew about it, that they had some very specific examples of politics politicians and candidates that were either involved or were the the passive beneficiaries of this support. CSIS takes this to the government, and it looks like the government did not take this seriously. I think that's what the reports that we've seen have shown. So what is the proper recourse? Because because there's a, a part of what you're saying that it sounds like it's just to say, oh, well, the government had that call, and maybe another government will take it differently. Well, you're saying on behalf of the, the leaker or the people who are... so. Well, I'm, I'm, you're, you're, I'm trying to understand what, what your position is on, on what should have oh. happened in this case, if anything, if someone okay. were well, very frustrated that this was getting handed to the government and they weren't taking it seriously. Well, look, it kind of goes to our previous point there. I ran for office. You want to be a decision maker? You, you go and become a decision maker. You want to go work for a political party. You think that things are not happening and you want to ha- you know see happen. You volunteer, you get involved, you be a public person, you advocate for your positions. You know, they you don't have to you know, necessarily put your name on the ballot, but you can go be a, a staffer and try to go to a ministry uh, or you know, some area that you're passionate about and knowledgeable about and say, these are the policy positions that I think that we should take. I think that, you know, more than anything is probably my frustration uh, because if this person, and I, I don't know who this person is or, and, or whether they work for CSIS or not, and I think it's a lot of people, I guess, is what we're seeing too. Um, if they were a very public senior person that had access to this information and they was, you know, resigned their post and said, the reason I'm resigning is because I don't think we're taking this issue seriously, there are a lot of public reports that they can point to that would demonstrate that. I mean, we have what in CIRA, I always get the acronyms wrong, so apologies for that, but the NCIRA and NCICOP, we've been doing, uh, they, CISA's been putting out reports on foreign interference for years. The CISA's uh, has been reviewed and, and the recommendations have come from uh, you know, parliamentary uh, parliamentary committees or, or ENSICOP that is uh, that is nonpartisan that's chaired by a liberal MP and they're saying their recommendations things they should that we should be doing and those recommendations haven't been adhered to so there's pub- plenty of public information that suggests that this is a problem that should be actioned uh, without just kind of dumping uh, you know this these the sensitive reporting on it into in, the public um, I, I think that so yeah I. I that was one of my points to the to the person to say, hey, look, come on out, put your name to it. Like, let's talk about it if you want to talk about it and not in a threatening way. But like, I think that would almost do better. I was in a meeting and I don't think we did a good job with this and we should do better. For me, that's a more convincing argument, uh, to be honest, than, than letting this play out this way. Yeah. And I, I mean, to be honest, my view on this, and you may have some people that whether you call them a leaker or a whistleblower, they think they're smarter than the system and they think they can leak it and keep their identity guarded and, and never be outed. But you would have to assume that someone doing this, knowing what they're doing, would be doing it with the full expectation that they're going to be identified and they're going to be punished in, in some way, whatever that is. And and in that way, it almost looks more favorably upon you if you do just come out and name yourself before someone else names you. 
Yeah, yeah, and, and I don't want to, you know, harp on uh, too much on the one person, and, and as I don't mm-hmm. know the situation and, and who, who that person is, right? But uh, this is coming from somebody who wrote a book. I mean, I, I wrote a, a memoir about uh, uh, about working for CSIS, and and you better believe that I was concerned about my, you know, took considered and was concerned about my, my Security Information Act obligations, and you know, I. Th- uh, they say you're only kind of guilty when the judge finds you finds you guilty. But I had my name and my face in the book, and so I was ready to say this is why I said it. This is what I think. It's not in violation. I I didn't do names of former colleagues or any operational you know uh, information that can give things away. But I I acknowledge people might be mad at me. You know I acknowledge that the the, the, the thesis was not going to be happy about the the book being written. Um, so. Yeah, it's not a great feeling. I, I'm sure uh, you know the person has got all, all all sorts of stuff going on inside of them about what they feel they need to do, what they feel they want the public to hear, and what their obligations are. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, maybe would have been if they, if they really wanted that conversation, you got to kind of have it. You got to lead it. You got to be in front of it because what's happened with with things are coming left and right and showing up in newspaper articles one day and the next. Uh, article the next day, it kind of gets away, you know, it can get a little muddled. I assume there's not, you know, one centralized database of CSIS documents and information and reports that any of the, you know, 3,000 some odd employees at CSIS can go and, and peruse at their leisure. Things are, I assume, quite siloed and, and segmented. So let's talk about just the logistics of how many people would likely have access to information of this nature on a particular file. And I, I'm assuming it, it would vary, but uh, when you're getting into this level of specificity, are we talking about five people, 50 people, 500 people? Well, you know, I don't uh, don't know the exact numbers or could I probably say, uh, but I'll say this, that, you know, these, the, the, the classified or sensitive documents that were, um, you know, leaked, uh, those were distributed to, a, a large uh, number of people. I think they were across the five eyes. So the number of other intelligence services to I think PCO, PMO, like there's a there's a big list. Um, once those, once uh, kind of those get out of the organization and, and I don't know how many people are on that mailing list, but it's not, you know, it's not one, right? It's uh, it seemed like they were a, a few. And when you start getting into specific reports, that were sent out yeah you can probably drill down who's on the receiving list of uh of a report who is on the inside of a case file uh working civic investigations absolutely that stuff uh, is pretty tightly controlled i think if you work um that's with or for or uh, the service you, you can be uh you know pretty confident that they do a good job of protecting it and to your earlier question about will, will this get out the more information the 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 people reveal about what they know, the easier it's going to be to narrow down, you know, who had access to all of that information. I think that's ultimately what you're getting kind of getting down to. Um, they are, they are tightly controlled. Not everyone gets access to everything. There's this, you need to know principle you hear, uh, you may be familiar with it, but even if you have the highest levels of national security, even if you're cleared to, to whatever the highest clearance is, if you don't need to know that information, then you should not be provided that information. You, know, you don't get read in on every file. I can't walk down the hall uh, at CSIS and say, "Hey, what do you you know what are you working on?" Uh, <laughs> hey, what's happening in China today? Yeah, what's happening like what's, in Afghanistan today? What's yeah. going on? You know what's you know what's going on over there, right? The, the, you're you're generally uh, restricted to what you have specific access to. Now, certain areas would have you know that can be broad. Um, you know, when I was uh, 
when I was working there and I was in a support desk, that can mean a lot of different files in a very kind of shallow level, a lot of different investigations or someone working one investigation with a, with a tight team will have all the information on, you know, very, a very small investigation. So yeah, it's interesting to see um, as these can come out, I make assessments about, okay, well, like how close was this person to the reporting uh, versus, or the collection of the information versus the reporting, which would be on, was this distributed to a decision maker? And therefore, you know, they're getting selective intelligence and saying, why am I the only one who's got, who got this and more people need to hear? Or is it somebody who is, you know, collecting this information, passing it up and feel like it's not going anywhere. I think those are, you know, those are different things. I saw a Twitter thread from from someone recently, and I, I can't recall who it was, and I, I think they probably had some connection to the intelligence world that, that said intelligence reports are not to be taken as, you know, 100% ironclad fact. They're, they're meant to be reports that are then taken along with other various inputs. We saw that during the Public Order Emergency Commission where CSIS had this report and the government ultimately found something else. So I'm, I'm just curious if you should could shine some light on that. I mean, the, these documents, and I, I don't know the, the formal title of, of them, and there, there are probably several. What is the proper way to receive those? Are they, are they, is there a margin of error on these things? Or, or is it as, as certain as it comes or as certain as CSIS is when these things are put in paper? Yeah, I mean, the, the nature of, uh, of intelligence, it's dynamic. It's kind of evolving. You can have, you're building a picture and you're trying to provide information and, and assessment of that information. You're processing information into, you know, in this case, intelligence assessments to say this is, you know, what we think is, is happening. This is the picture, but yeah, it's, you know, getting it right or wrong, or just making, uh, making informed links. And then later on information comes up that challenges that hypothesis or changes it a little bit, or put some context and, and nuance onto reports. So, you know, in a case, in a case like this, or in, in the fact that this is a, a threat like this, that CSIS is a core part of CSIS's mandate that's, you know, uh, foreign influenced activities, uh, that is kind of a nuanced threat. Um, you will see reporting that comes out that is just trying to provide people uh, a picture of what's going on that, that they can make decisions based on, right? And that's why it is great, right? It is, you make uh, the best decisions you can, you make risk informed decisions, threat informed decisions. And I think that's, uh, one of the, the concerns you have is, well, did this person who is, who is uh, access to information, they have access to everything or are they selectively getting access to it? Do they know what risk mitigation has put in place? So, you know, what decisions were made with that, with that information? Um, you know, that is, we don't know. That's not always provided what, what kind of is happening behind the scenes. We kind of see, okay, well, they, they, uh, they got this and they did that, but we don't know everything they got. We don't know everything they did. Right. And that's, I think one of the challenges with getting selective leaks of, of, of documents is it's, yeah, it's not going to provide the whole picture. I'm not saying the information passed along is wrong. I'm not saying that the, the documents given weren't like at the time, accurate pictures of what we knew then or about the specific threat then, but it's, it's hard to say like, this is the smoking gun, right? It's uh, that doesn't always the case in this type, these types of investigations. 
Yeah, and I, it's funny because I, I know that some of my audience right now is like seething because we've been going hard on this story right, based yeah. on these reports for the last, not at well, you, just probably at me more than anything because they, you know, they know I've been talking about this. And, and it's one of these things as a journalist, I'm inclined towards more information and the more the better and then we can decide from it. And and I, I realize there is a, I mean, perhaps it's a philosophical point more than it's a legal point about what the limit is. At what point does it become justifiable to do this? And and I, I think, you know, th there is one sort of takeaway of if you feel it's worth staking your life and your career and the legal punishments on, then okay, let the cards fall where they may. Well, I, and I want to say this to, to folks too, because uh, you know I I get asked a lot about the, the leaks and the documents, those types of things, and I feel like I want to pr present that that context, which is these have you know threats and risks, and and let's add nuance to it. But I dedicated ten years of my life. Uh, to investigating threats to national security, and many of my colleagues have as well. This is one of them, right? Mm -hmm. So that I, I I do not want to discount the risk. I I do not and the threat. I do not want to come across in any way that's saying that you know there's nothing to see here and nobody were no. That is absolutely not the case, right? The CSIS has been putting in their public reports. There have been recommendations coming out of government bodies that this is a threat. This is a concern. This is something we should do more about. Um, and there are legitimate questions to be asked 100% about what did the government know and what did they do? And was that appropriate, right? Uh, and if they did, you know, and then there's the nuance, which is, well, look, if they didn't do more, is that because they benefited, right? And I think everyone mm -hmm. wants to get, and, and those are absolutely 100% fair questions uh, that we should be asking, which people are calling for public inquiry or more sunlight and more transparency. And I agree. So, you know, I don't want to discount that and be used to say, well, you know, the, the, the leaker is not a whistleblower and therefore, you know, this is a big brouhaha about nothing. Absolutely not. You know, we have an intelligence service that's been working on this. We've been sending reports up uh, and it is a real threat and we should do more 100 um, percent. So, yeah, I, I you know, I, I I get the blowback. I get the frustration. Yeah. I'm I always feel like because I'm from the intelligence community, I need to say, look, guys, you know, don't put my former colleagues at risk by dumping you know, sensitive intel out. But my goodness, we, you know, there's plenty of public uh, information that says this is a problem that we should be doing more about. Uh, this has sparked a conversation about that. Uh, and yeah, I'm not saying yeah. there's no public benefit. I'm just saying I wish we didn't get here because of leaks. Yeah, and, and I agree. Process is important. I mean, it's the old thing about, you know, if police search someone without a warrant and they find something there, but they weren't allowed to have searched in the first place, there's a, a remedy available to that person. So I, I know it's not a perfectly analogous situation, but but you can't just take this Machiavellian approach to uh, these things, which I, I think we can agree on in, in principle, if not uh, necessarily in the specific case here. You might like this leak. You might not like the next one. And if we're going to rely on individual people who feel empowered to, to do it, I, I don't think that's a great system. Um, yeah. So whatever we feel about this. But once again, foreign interference, that's a core CSIS mandate threat since 1984 that uh, the, the, the our security intelligence service been asked to investigate and advise government on, and they've been doing that. Um, and now we got to figure out, so what do we do? What do we not do? Why? Uh, and what should we do going forward uh, now that we are having this conversation? Because that will you know, that will require further action. Uh, and as look, as a political candidate, I have some insight in how nominations work. And, and those are those are messy things. Um, that's no easy solutions on how to tidy those things up or the political process. But clearly, clearly, uh, you know, I think there are steps that we can and should take.
All right. Well, the fantastic book written by this gentleman, Andrew Kirsch, is I Was Never Here, My True Canadian Spy Story of Coffees, Codenames, and Covert Operations. You can, In the Age of Terrorism, you can get that on Amazon and Indigo, and I would encourage you to read it. It was a lot of fun. And you can also check my interview with Andrew from several months ago to get a little bit more information about that. Andrew, thank you so much for your time and candor, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was former CSIS intelligence officer Andrew Kirsch. And as mentioned, you should definitely check out his book, I Was Never Here. It's not a salacious or thriller type book, but it's a tremendously valuable resource to understand a government agency in Canada that so often flies under the radar because it's not necessarily as sexy as like the Jason Bourne movies as far as what they do. But uh, they do play a role. And as we're seeing in the course of the Chinese interference story, they were playing, they were doing their part and the government, it seems, was not doing its part. So uh, let me know what you think about that in the comments. Uh, turning from one agency to another, though, we spoke last week about the Mass Casualty Commission's report. And this was the commission that was struck to deal with that horrific uh, killing spree in Portapique, Nova Scotia, two years ago, actually pushing three years ago now. And the one thing that I, I would point out to a lot of people about this thing that I said on the show last week is that it looks like the recommendations in the report were just written by the very the most radical activists in each particular category. So the recommendations on domestic violence looked like they were written by uh, activists in that sector who, again, may have a legitimate cause, but it's not one connected to what happened in Nova Scotia, at least uh, as much as the report made it seem. And the firearm section looked like it was ripped right out of what the most rabid gun control activists in this country seek at every turn. And they just look for opportunities to advance this agenda, irrespective of the fact of the case. And in the Nova Scotia uh, killing spree, the firearms were all illegally owned. So no changes to the legal ownership regime for guns in Canada would have done anything. But that part is conveniently left out of the narrative. A couple of weeks ago, when I was in Ottawa for the Canada Strong and Free Networking Conference, I sat down with Tracy Wilson from the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, and I'm actually going to be speaking at their AGM in Ottawa in June. So if you are a CCFR member, I do hope you come out and say hello and hear what I'm speaking about. I have no idea what I'm speaking about yet because it's in June, so things could change. There's no point in writing a speech now, but it was great to see Tracy Wilson in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago as well, and we were chatting just to continue contextualize this before the Mass Casualty Commission report came out, but it's really, as I mentioned, a lot of the same themes and dynamics that we were discussing that are part of this bigger picture of the gun issue in Canada that were coming up that we now see reflected in that report. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Joining me is Tracy Wilson, the Vice President of Public Relations for the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, a group that's always been a great supporter of True North, and I've always been a great supporter and member of, yes. of them. I, look, I, I think it's not really breaking news to say that gun owners have been under assault with Justin <laughs> Trudeau's government. Uh, we've had the Order and Council Bill, C-21, a number of reforms and, and regulations. And I, even just as we were chatting a moment ago, I mean, what, how do you even as a gun owner begin to tackle all of these things, because it really is a battle on many fronts that the government's waging. It absolutely is. And in fact, to me, as a gun owner, I've been a gun owner for 27 years. Mm -hmm. I'm a mom. I'm a grandma. I want a safer country, too. And I know it's not my community committing the violence. So for me, the problem is, is it sort of a, a breach of the, the social contract? 
that I made with the government when they said, here's the regulations in order to be a gun owner, here's what you can have, here's what you can do, and I said, okay, and I complied with them, regardless of how ridiculous some of them are. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. They just are still coming at us, still trying to confiscate our legally acquired property, even though we've done nothing to warrant it. And it's incredibly frustrating. So frustrating that, yeah, we're taking them to court. Uh, we've seen a, a little bit of optimism, I'd say, in the last few months, not from the federal government, but from provinces. I, I think Alberta really started this off. They appointed a, a very firearms-focused, a firearms-owners-focused CFO, Terry Bryan. They've also now, under Danielle Smith, really said, we're not playing ball with the, the federal government's gun confiscation. Has this been a, an area where there's a bit of hope that you can lobby provincial governments in a way that might not have been top of mind for your agenda? Yeah, well, in fact, when the CCFR first launched our federal court action back in 2020, immediately after the big sweeping gun ban, we had written to the different provinces, to the um, attorney generals of each province, asking them to intervene on our court challenge. Right. And we didn't hear back from any of them. And then um, after Danielle Smith took over, uh, we heard back from them. They've actually intervened on our, they filed an application to intervene on our court challenge, and it was approved by the Associate Chief Justice of the Federal Courts. So Alberta's all in, Saskatchewan's right behind them, Manitoba, Yukon, and New Brunswick have all been very vocal against this. Not Ontario, though. We're still waiting for, well, that's the thing with Doug, right? <laughs> I, th I think he's perfectly comfortable where he is, and he doesn't like to rock the boat either way. Um, at the same time, I've known Doug Ford a long time, and I know he doesn't support the war on gun owners. He knows that the problem is crime, violence, and gun smuggling. A lot of, I mean, you mentioned this a, a moment ago. A lot of people might not realize, because gun owners probably seem a bit rebellious to the Canadian culture, but they're very compliant by definition, individuals. Yes. You know, the, we get the paperwork, we get the forms, we, you know, make sure that this is locked and this is locked. And, and at a certain point, it, you reach a breaking point, I think, where gun owners are saying it's just not worth being in this hobby anymore. And that's my fear. Are you seeing that or are they really digging their heels in and saying, no, I'm, I'm fighting for this right to keep my property? There's two things I'm really afraid of. Number one, people just giving up, getting rid of their stuff and abandoning our community altogether. Because it, it's to the people who participate, it's incredibly important. The other thing I'm afraid of is is non-compliance, and I'll tell you why. I know I know a lot of people sort of promote that idea, but here's the thing. In any functioning civil society and democracy, you don't want people willingly breaking the law. But when you force people to that edge, when they've complied with every law and every regulation you've put before them, and then you still come at them, and the idea is you're coming to kick in their doors and take their stuff, people just say, forget it. I am sick and tired of complying because it hasn't paid off for me. So I think those are the two things that frighten me most. And thirdly, um, the fact that all the effort, resources, and focus is on legal gun owners. And meanwhile, we've got crime blowing up out of control yeah. all across the country, and especially in, in places like Toronto, Montreal and Vancouver. Yeah, and, and gun owners are actually the toughest people in terms of wanting to go after gun crime. It, yes. it's, the issue is just the Liberals have a very broad definition of what a gun criminal is, and they basically think a gun owner is inherently a bad person that needs all of these regulations heaped upon them. Either that or they at least want the public to think that yeah. because it's very politically expedient to, you know, beat up the opposition or to beat up their opponents with, with you know, they're going to make assault weapons legal again or or scary things like that. I think down deep the Liberals know. Marco Mendicino knows he's a, a Crown prosecutor in his previous uh, business life. They've got all kinds of lawyers. They've got Bill Blair, who was chief of police in Toronto. These people know full well what they're doing. 
isn't going to have a demonstrable public safety benefit, but they know it's going to have an actual public or an actual political impact, and that's why they do it, which is horrible, and it's un-Canadian. Tracy Wilson, thank you. Thank you. That was Tracy Wilson, spokesperson for the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. As I mentioned, going to be at their AGM in Ottawa come June. So that should be a great time. I don't even know if we're going out to a range or not. Probably not, but because we're going to be in a uh, downtown Ottawa hotel, I believe. But uh, you never know. I need to get out to a range, actually. I've, all of these restrictions have just like made it so difficult to uh, do anything with certain firearms in Canada. So uh, now we are going to have to, as gun owners, if you are one of them, dig in a little bit more and make sure you don't just give up because that was what Tracy and I were discussing there that some people are saying you know this is just too difficult a hobby to deal with maybe it's not worth the hassle maybe it's not uh, worth doing it but people need to say no this is our livelihood this is our life this is our hobby this is our pastime this is our sport this is the way we feed our family in some cases I mean firearms mean so many different things to different people but to the liberals they mean weaponry and to the liberals gun owners mean criminals and that is the they are the ones who are radical they are are the ones who are fringe. So we can't let them reframe the narrative around law-abiding, peaceful gun owners. So uh, that's a little bit of a teaser of what you'll see more of on the show in the months ahead as these regulations and laws continue to work their way through the system. We'll keep talking about it here. And as I've said to people, if you are not a gun owner, you surely can engage with this from a property rights perspective and from a science and evidence-based policy perspective. You don't need to like guns or no guns to realize what the government is doing here. That does it for us for today. We'll be back on Thursday with another regular edition of The Andrew Lawton Show. And as I said earlier, a post-mortem of the federal court hearing on the Emergencies Act. That's coming up in a couple days' time. Hope you have a great rest of the week, though. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.